a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What's he saying there? He's not, he's not saying that it is his desire that, that there be conflict in families because of him. He's not saying that's what I desire to happen, but he's saying that that's, that's going to happen. That's just going to happen. It's, it's going to be a reality. It is simply a fact that the gospel very often causes tension in families when some believe and some don't. And the gospel demands a radical change of life. And they don't understand, right? And the pressure can be heavy, especially on new believers. And so it's not a stretch to believe that that could have been going on here, causing some of these uh, professing believers to consider going back to Judaism uh, to make their family happy. But in later chapters of this letter, which we'll get to in due time, show that some of them were thinking about going back to Judaism because of discrimination and because of persecution. It, it would be, thinking about when this letter was written, it would be another 300 years before Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire and therefore uh, safe to be a Christian. We're talking, this is the first century. And in the first century, Christians were heavily persecuted and even put to death in gruesome and violent ways by the, by the Roman government. It was hard to be a Christian in the Roman Empire at that, at that time. It was dangerous. And not only that, not only did the Romans persecute them, but the Jews persecuted them. I, I mean, think about, think, think about Paul. Think about Paul. What, what was Paul doing before he met Christ? And Paul said in Galatians 1, For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. So they were more like Paul. I mean, they, his only claim to infamy was that he, he persecuted believers more zealously than everybody else. That doesn't mean he was the only one doing it, right? Um, some of the things that, that, that these Christians faced uh, in Hebrews are laid out in later chapters, like I said, but the point here is that that was a huge reason for them to consider just giving up the whole thing because they were human. I mean, uh, it was hard being a Christian in the first century in the Roman Empire. I mean, I've said it before. It was, it was hard enough being a Jew in the Roman Empire when you had the Romans against you. It was hard, even harder to be a Christian with the Romans and the Jews after you. The famous case in the, in the, in the, in the later chapters of Hebrews is some of the Christians were being arrested and put in prison because of their faith. And when the others who had not been put in prison yet went to visit and encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ who were in prison, while they were gone visiting their brothers and sisters in Christ, others came and ransacked their house and stole all their stuff and messed, plundered all their property. And when they got back, their home was destroyed. How long could you put up with that? How long could you put up with that and not feel some temptation to say, I'm, I'm tired of dealing with this. Like, you know, have I made a mistake? You know? And so this letter was written. This letter was written to, to, to 
warn them of the dangers of walking away from Christ? Because uh, you're not just walking away from a new social group. You're walking away from the very hope of your salvation. You're walking away from every possible hope of salvation. If you walk away, which is why, uh, it, it explains why there's so many warnings in this letter. It's like you, it's just one after another after another, another strong warnings against walking away. But also in between all those warnings are all these encouragements, especially to those who are tempted to walk away from Christianity to go back to Judaism. All these reasons why you should stay uh, with Christ as opposed to going back to the old way of Judaism. Because he's going to show in this letter, and he is showing, that every aspect of Judaism was always preparing for and pointing forward to something greater coming, namely Christ. So, in chapter 1, he said Jesus was greater than the angels. Why? Because it was angels who were the go-between between God and Moses on Mount Sinai to deliver the Ten Commandments. I mean, Scripture is clear. No one can see God and live. Not even Moses. So there had to be a go-between. Right? And so, yeah, the, it says that the, ten stone, the tablets of the Ten Commandments were written with the very finger of God, but God could not come in His majesty to Moses. Here you go. Moses would die. So there's a go-between. Angels. And, and, and chapter 1 is showing that Jesus is superior to even those angels who were the mediators between God and Moses on that mountain. And then chapter 3, why did we skip chapter 2? Because it's a huge warning. Chapter 3 was showing... How Jesus was greater than Moses himself. Moses, who stood... Think about somebody tempted to go back to Judaism. You're, you're saying Jesus is greater than Moses, who stood at the, at the head of that old covenant. He is the patriarch of Judaism, along with Abraham. Right? And he, Jesus is greater than, than even Moses. Chapter 4 showed how uh, the, the Sabbath promise in judaism uh was always pointing forward to something greater coming something more eternal not just not just this earthly promised land and not just uh victory over earthly enemies just, uh it was always pointing something forward and you guessed it to christ and then beginning in chapter five all the way through the chapter where we are today he's been showing how jesus is greater and better than the very ones who stood between them and God on a daily basis, namely the priests in Judaism. And he's going to finish this section on, 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 Jesus, on how Jesus is a greater high priest today in chapter 7 through giving us a thorough introduction to Melchizedek. Um, and the author of Hebrews makes a, in this chapter is going to make a detailed argument showing how, how the Old Testament, even from the early days of Abraham, Abraham, who, who lived long before the law was given to Moses. Um, and, and if Abraham lived before the law was given, Abraham lived before the Levitical priests in the, in the Jewish system ever existed. Even from those early days, it was anticipating a greater priest than the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant. A greater priest who really could give them peace with God. And Melchizedek is the foreshadow uh, of that greater priest coming so let's read this chapter we're not going to look at the whole chapter today but uh let's just read it for context 
and then we'll look more closely at it. All right, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, Ab and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to Abraham, the patriarch, uh, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from, uh, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from the tribe of Judah. And in connection with the, that tribe, Moses never said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and he quotes Psalm 110.4, that only other place that he's mentioned in the Bible, for you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they, prevented, they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds this pre, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the, of the people since he did it, he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made a priest forever all right let's pray father this is your holy inspired inerrant authoritative sufficient clear necessary word 
Uh, this, is, this is not just the words of a human author, but as you say in Second Peter chapter 1, the author of Hebrews wrote as the Holy Spirit carried him along. This is your word, and we bow in submission to it. And for those of us who in our hearts and minds do not feel like we are bowing in submission to it, or skeptical of bowing in submission to it, um, afraid to bow in submission to it, Father, work in our hearts and minds to break down every barrier. Um, give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us minds to understand the truth that is here. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that is here. Give us wills to obey whatever it leads us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Did you get all that when I read that? Easy peasy. Um, well, we'll say a bit about it anyway and uh, try to see what he's saying. And over the course of this chapter, we're going to divide it up into three major sections. One caveat that I've already given, we're not going to get to all three today, just the first one. Um, and then the next two in the next, the next week. So today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And I just want to be introduced to Melchizedek, who he is, and why he might be sort of important, and how he points us forward to a better priest coming, namely Jesus. That's going to be our focus today, verses 1 through 3. And then next week, I'll go ahead and give you those. Next week in verses 4 through 11, we're going to continue building on that first point that we introduced today, but also see how Melchizedek, uh, God used to make better promises of this uh, coming better priest. And then finally, to round out the chapter, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, uh, shows how the fulfillment of what Melchizedek always pointed forward to, namely Jesus, achie achieved a more sure salvation than any other priest in Judaism ever could. This is a, really, it's an amazing passage. And, um, and uh, it's, it's a passage really where uh, the author of Hebrews and the, the Holy Spirit speaking through him um, is not only pointing us to Christ, which he does, and showing us how the plan of God was always to provide salvation through Christ and Christ alone. But he's also kind of showing us in this chapter how to read the Old Testament. And that's the cool thing about Hebrews. It not only teaches you about Christ and your salvation, but it also kind of teaches you how to study the Bible and how to read the Old Testament in the way that we're supposed to read it. Uh, so let's start and, let's, and think about who Melchizedek is and how he points us forward to a better priest. So the chapter opens in the first verse and a half, just reminding us of who Melchizedek is and as we meet him for the first time in Genesis 14. Here's what he says in verses, again in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, Abraham, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Now, if, you're, if, you, if it's been a little bit since you read Genesis, and you're, Genesis 14, and you're not exactly sure what he's talking about in those verses right there, it's a pretty good story, all right? Genesis 14 is a pretty good story. Just to give you an overview, all right, the background to our meeting of, of Melchizedek. So imagine you... You've, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, so before they got burnt up, uh, each had their own king, 
king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, and they, for 12 years, they and among others, they for 12 years had been serving another king who had conquered them at some point, and his name was Keterleomer. Don't name your children Keterleomer. Uh, just don't. So king of Sodom and king of Gomorrah were, had served Keterleomer for 12 years, and 12 years was long enough. They were kind of fed up with it. So on year 13, Sodom and Gomorrah got together and said, let's revolt, but we need some help. So they went and got and convinced three other kings to join forces with them. So five kings and all their men joined forces, right, to, to, to revolt against Keterleomer. Well, Keterleomer caught wind of this thing, and uh, he said, I'm not going to stand for it. So he goes and he gets three other kings of his own to join forces with him, which makes his number four. So if you're keeping count, that's five kings and their men with Sodom and Gomorrah and four total with Keterleomer, and they're about to go at it. Well, Keterleomer, uh, is, is, he's pretty ticked off by this whole thing, and so he knows it's about to, to come to a head at a particular battle, so he's on his way to the battle, and as he's on his way, he is, he is just he is killing and conquering and pillaging and taking more and taking more and taking more, and the, the, the battle finally comes to a head. This is all in Genesis 14, guys. The, 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 the battle finally comes to a head. And it's, it's Keterleomer and his you know, four, four guys all together. And Sodom and Gomorrah and their three guys with him. So five, four versus five. And it comes to a battle. And it, and it says in Genesis 14 that this valley where the Dead Sea is now, by the way. But in this valley, uh, there were like tar pits in it. And I, I don't know God's... It's like sunk to death or they got stuck or whatever. But all that, all that meant was Keterleomer and his men, even though it's four against five, they won. And they routed Sodom and Gomorrah and, and their guys. And what they did in, in, in typical fashion, when a, when a king would conquer another king or an army would conquer another army, um, the, the conquering king would take all the possessions of the conquered. And they would, they would take captive all the people of the conquered. Side note, this is a big deal in this instance, right? Because uh, who, were, who were the main two instigators of this whole thing? The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, if you remember the, this neighborhood of Genesis, who is living in Sodom at the time? Abraham's nephew Lot and his family. And so when the king of Sodom was conquered again by Keterleomer, Lot and his family were taken captive. And you're about to find out you don't mess with Abraham's family. Well, back to the story in Genesis 14. Uh, also, usually when the conquering king would conquer the people and he would take all their people and take all their stuff, he would let one captive go. Why? They say, you get to go free, but here's what you must do. You must go to all the surrounding territories and all the surrounding kings and tell them and warn them that they should fear me and don't mess with me. That's what they did. And it's this guy, it's this guy who Keterleomer let go, it's this guy who eventually makes his way to Abraham, where he's living, and he says, I don't know if you heard what happened, but 
the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some others were taken captive by Kedarlaomer, and your nephew Lot and his family and all his possessions were taken, taken captive. Um, and that didn't sit well with Abraham, to say the least. So here's what he did. God had blessed him seriously. Um, and so he blessed him so much that when he gathered all his men, his own men, when he gathered his men uh, together to go do business, it was an army of 318 men. Uh, that's a lot. Um, and, 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 and it says that Abraham and his men, 318 of them, it says that they set out and they tracked Keterleomer and his massive army. They tracked him all the way, it says in the, in the text, all the way to Dan, which from where they were was 125 miles. They tracked for 125 miles. And when they got there, it was night. And so Abraham said, let's split up our army in two. And they raided Keterleomer's uh, uh army and his men at night while they were sleeping and by remember by Keterleomer's men I mean his men and, and and all the three other kings so four armies lay in there sleeping at night Abraham and his men attacked them at night took them over and uh when the fighting was done here's here's the way um it is phrased in Hebrews 7 1 uh they slaughtered them they slaughtered them Met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. What king? Keterleomer and all his guys. And then though it says when they attacked him at night and slaughtered him, there were some who got away, and Abraham's men chased them for another 50 miles. All right, so Abraham was a bad man. Well, Abraham got all his stuff back. Um, matter of fact, he got all the stuff that had been... Uh, captured as the spoils of war during that whole thing, including Lot and his family. And after it was all over, the king of Salem met with Abraham in a field to kind of settle things. And also present at that meeting between Abraham and the king of, of uh, I said Salem, I mean king of Sodom. At that meeting with Abraham and the king of Sodom, to kind of settle all the matters, was a mysterious guy named Melchizedek. And he's described in, in Genesis 14 in this way. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. We're not told anything else about Melchizedek personally, just that he was there. And he was a priest of God Most High. And we're only told these things about Melchizedek, and they're kind of important. We're told that he's both king and a priest. It says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He is both a king and a priest. Might want to note that. He brings out food for Abraham and all his men after the war. But what is the food? Bread and wine. Bread and wine? Might want to note that. Oh, and who is he priest of? He's priest of God Most High. Hmm. He's not priest of any pagan god like the king of Sodom who was standing there with him and Abraham. No, it says he was priest of God Most High. Incidentally, the same God Abraham worshipped who had just made covenant promises to Abraham to bless him. And where is he priest? Salem. That is short for Jerusalem. 
Mm. And on that note, in the Genesis 14 story, after the, the king priest Melchizedek serves them bread and wine, it says in verses 19 and 20 that he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram. This was before his name was changed to Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils of war as an offering to Melchizedek. He tithed to Melchizedek. That's what Hebrews 7 is making a big deal out of. Just note those things. We're going to go back to Hebrews 7 in just a minute and tie some of this all together. But before we do, um, let's, let's round out the story from Genesis 14. Because uh, the king of Sodom is still standing there. I don't, I don't really promote movies, but if you guys, have you ever seen the movie um, Tombstone? It's, it's like when, uh, when they're standing there, he goes, oh, Johnny, I forgot you were there. You may go now. Anyway, it's like, um, he, he's like, oh, king of Sodom, you're still here. Okay. Uh, and, and, and the king of Sodom wants to be, make sure Abraham knows he's still standing there. And, and, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, you can keep all the stuff. Just give me all the people. Abraham's like, nah, um, I'm going to keep all my people. And I'm going to let my men have their share of the stuff. But here's what I'll do. Here's what Abraham told the king of Sodom. I'll give you all my share of the stuff because I'm not about to let you say that I got rich off of you. I'll give you all of my stuff uh, because I know that God gives me and has given me all that I need. And so the king of Sodom uh, took all of uh, Abraham's share of the stuff that was won from the war and he took it and he rode off into the sunset back to Sodom only for him and all that stuff just a few chapters later to get burned up from heaven. So do with that what you will. Don't live for stuff. As, uh, the, um, something to take away from that. All right. Bringing all this together. Begin to see what the author of Hebrews is saying uh, is important about our good friend Melchizedek. Let's read again chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, one more time. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. We just heard about that. And he blessed him. We just read that. And to Abraham a portion, a tenth part of everything. We just uh, read that. And it says, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. And there's where the significance lies. He resembles Christ. He resembles Christ. He is a type of Christ. That's theological term he he's sort of an old testament picture of the coming savior that was promised to come through abraham how how do, how does he resemble christ well that that's the point of these opening verses and really the whole chapter but just looking at these first three verses there seem to be three main ways that he resembles christ his role his name and his life his role his name and his life and i just want to note each of those Really quickly, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. His role, his name, and his life. First, his role. His role resembles Christ. 
Like we mentioned, it says in verse 1 of that, at the, that, that he was both a king and a priest. He was king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God. That's the first thing that this author mentions about, about Melchizedek. He's king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. There were none like that in Judaism. Nobody like that in Judaism and in the law of Moses. Why? Because in, in the law of Moses, kings came from what tribe? Judah. Priests came from what tribe? Levi. Never did the twain meet. You know, you didn't have a king and a priest from the same tribe. Not under the law of Moses, but Melchizedek was not under that law. Melchizedek came before that law. And he had both roles, both priest and king, resembling Christ who would come, Jesus who would come, as both king who is ruler and judge over all, as well as our great high priest who came and by the sacrifice of himself makes us worthy to be forgiven. And he's also pictured in that story in the bread and the wine. That, that Melchizedek brought, picturing the body and the blood of Christ, sacrifice for our sins, remembered by bread and wine, pictured in the Lord's Supper, which we will observe tonight, by the way, in the service. If you weren't planning to come to church tonight, you might come to church tonight. But not, not just his role as king and priest, but his, he, the point here in first three verses, his name resembles Christ. That's, the author mentioned that in verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, comes from two Hebrew words. Um, Melech, king, and Tzedek, righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And the fact that he was king of Salem which comes from the Hebrew word shalom, means peace, right? So he's king of righteousness, king of peace, foreshadowing the work of Christ that he would one day accomplish as our righteousness before God who brings us peace with God. But finally, in addition to his role, king and priest, and his name, king of righteousness and king of peace, his life resembles Christ. That's the interesting ending here in verse 3. Uh, it says he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor uh, end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues to preach forever. What? Without mother or father? Not literally. Not literally. If you've read the Old Testament any length of time, you know that one of the things that sometimes makes it hard to read are all the genealogies, right? Everybody's got a genealogy. And they make sure everybody knows everybody's genealogy. This is the son of this guy and 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 this guy. And this guy actually lived this many years before he had kids, and then they had kids, and then he lived this many years after he had kids. And, and You know, everybody is, you know who everybody is. And their granddaddy. But not Melchizedek's. Curiously, when you read of him in Genesis 14, that's all you get. You don't get a lifespan recorded, how old he was, how long he had lived. You don't get a genealogy, who his father or grandfather or anybody was. It's as if he has no lineage. It's as if he had lived forever. 
And, it, and that as if in his life resembles what is actually to, true of Christ. That he is the eternal son of God. Who took on flesh as the king of kings. To bring us to God as our great high priest. All of this is interesting, sure. But why did the author of Hebrews pick this random guy out of, out of Genesis who appears in like three verses in Genesis to make such a big deal over? Because King David did too in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm about the coming Messiah. And in it, David says about the coming Messiah, the coming king. Remember how that... Psalm begins, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, sit, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this coming Messiah is going to be a, a king, right? Whose enemies are going to be his footstool. He's going to rule and he's going to reign, he's going to conquer. He's going to be a conquering king, the Messiah. What else about him in Psalm 110? This, what else about this Messiah king? What else about this Christ king? Well, David says in verse 4 of Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of good old Melchizedek. So the promise of the Old Testament itself was that Jesus would not merely be our king, but would also be our great high priest forever to bring us to God. And the rest of this chapter will show why, his, why Jesus' priesthood had to be in the order of Melchizedek's priesthood rather than Levi's priesthood according to the law of Moses. Sneak preview, the Levite priesthood was never supposed to be permanent. Melchizedek's was, Jesus is it. But next week we're going to see how all the rest of this is fleshed out a little more in the rest of the chapter. But in the first three verses, he's already given us plenty to think about. So I'm going to pray and then I'll give you a couple of things we can talk about around our tables before we're done.